Well, good morning and welcome to Regen. I feel like that kind of displaced everyone. Everyone had to like move to different parts of the sanctuary to meet people they don't know yet. Um, uh, we are so glad to have you here. If this is your first time with us, we would love um, to offer you a gift. We have mugs on the back table. Um, we'd love also to start a relationship with you. So if you'd fill out that hey card, um, you, we'd love to get your email address and you can start getting our reconnect emails. If you've been coming for a while and you don't get our reconnect emails, we would love for you to get them. So you could also fill that card out. Um, just a, a couple of quick announcements. Um, first of all, here at Regen, we are about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so it's our hope that this morning, um, as we sing together, as we um, hang out and say hello together, as we hear from the word of God, that your life will be interrupted by his love and grace. Um, for our announcements, if you have a Facebook account and you would be willing to do a check-in here at Regen, if you use the hashtag RegenGives, that will generate a donation to the basement. And the basement is just a ministry in Warren that helps those who are either homeless or just really struggling with poverty. Um, and then we have two upcoming service opportunities, and one is in your bulletin. It's the Recovery Rally, which is going to be Saturday, September 8th. And if you want to join us, Kyle and I will be there. We're going to be handing out sunglasses, T-shirts, um, and we're also going to be promoting our After Hours kind of 2.0, which is stories to tell. And so um, we would love to have you be there. We'd love to have lots of people in green t-shirts hanging out and representing Regen as we support those in our community who are in recovery. And then the other um, service opportunity is Sunday, August 26th at 5 p.m. Um, Grace Campus is going to be setting up for their garage sale. So they raise around like two to four thousand dollars a year for the food pantry. But the deal is they need some strong, able bodies to move items from all over the church into, like, the main hallways in the fellowship hall. So if you um, would be willing to come and help with that, they would be more than grateful for that. Kyle and I will be there. We'll probably do dinner afterwards. Um, so that's Sunday, August 26th at 5 p.m. So um, I think that that's all for our announcements. Um, Smooth transition, like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Oh, Dan, the intern's here. Temporary Dan, come here. <laughs> so there's a lot of Dans in our church, and he has been Dan the intern, but he's an intern no longer, so therefore you are temporary Dan. You're going to pray for the offering. You're looking at me like oh, you have no idea yeah, what's going on. I have no idea. That's what's going on right now. Okay, okay. smooth transitions, people. Well-oiled machine. Here you go. Well, let's pray. Um, dear Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today, and we are so thankful for this morning that we can come uh, to praise you, to lift you high, and to learn from your word. Uh, we just pray over this offering um, that we're giving, Lord. I just pray that we will give um, more than just our money, uh, but our hearts to you, God. Uh, lift these things up to you. And in your name we pray. Amen. It strikes me that we really spend a lot of time accusing you, Father, of putting up walls. But the truth of the matter is the walls are ours. Um, the walls are ours. The places that we want you to stay out of and keep out of and far away from, they're yours. They're not yours, they're ours. So God, come and tear down our walls this morning. Help us to see you and hear you and do what you say. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. 
Uh, kids can go back with Miss Pam if they're going back. So, no, Colleen, you're too old. Colleen, please come back. Um, uh, welcome to Regen. My name is Kyle, and I get to be the pastor here. Um, a few things. Um, I posted a, if you're not kind of on our email list and you're not, uh, and if you are on social media and you've not liked our pages, please do that because as we step into the fall, we're throwing a lot of information uh, into those emails. Uh, the trick with email, don't know if you've heard this, you actually have to read it to know what's in it. So that's an important step. Uh, um, so Dan's like, no. Um, and so uh, one of the things that we're sharing a lot about right now is something we're calling circles. And uh, if you're familiar with small groups because you've been at a church before, that's great. Um, you may not like circles because it doesn't have a curriculum. Uh, it doesn't have like a long teaching time. Our circles are built around the three relationships that we all need. We need a growing connection with our father up. We need um, an opportunity to connect with uh, people far from Jesus out, and we need a spiritual family that helps us do that and holds us accountable. That's the end. And so our circles are all about those patterns and predictable patterns of up, in, and out. So we'll meet at somebody's home, uh, we'll gather in the kitchen because we'll all have brought food and uh, share what we're grateful for. We'll eat a meal together, we'll spend some time reflecting and reading scripture. Uh, which is just four simple questions that anybody, even somebody that's never encountered the Bible before, could answer. Questions like, what surprises you about this text? Questions like, uh, what does this say about Jesus? And then there's a time where we just pray, and, and it's not long and it's not hard. All you have to say is, something I need is blank, and someone I want to bless is blank. That's our circles. And so we're looking at probably two of those this fall. And uh, we already have one for middle school and high school students that meets on Sunday nights at our home. But it is led uh, by uh, Aaron Jesse, who's not here, and Dan and Rebecca. Dan's here. Uh, Rebecca is not, and Becca Anderson, who's also not here. Everybody is not here. I don't know where everyone is, but thank you. Not everyone is. I mean, you're here. Hi, I love you. You're not the second class regen citizens, by the way. Um, I'm just looking out, and I'm like, where's. Okay, so, um, uh, yeah, and then the other thing um, you'll see in that email, and I posted about it, is I've been reading this really good book called Families Where Grace is in Place, Building a Home Free of Manipulation, Legalism, and Shame, uh, and it's blowing my mind. So if you are married, I would like to invite you to come be a part of a book club that we're going to do on three Saturdays, one in September, one in October, one in November. Um, if you're a parent, this would be really good. Um, a few caveats about that. Somebody asked me, a couple people asked me this week, um, hey, I want to come to this, but it's not my spouse's thing. Is that okay? And I lovingly responded with no, uh, simply because um, the last thing any marriage needs is one partner going to a book club and coming back and saying, guess what we're going to do now, okay? Uh, that'll cause more problems than it solves. Um, and the other thing... Um, that somebody did ask me though, is if I'm a single parent, can I come to the parenting parts? And the answer to that question is yes. Okay, so there's principles in this that'll help you parent. And another person asked me, is it for young couples? And I think if you are married, you will find this book helpful. And I think um, it'll help you figure out how to parent your adult children and how to parent or grandparent your grandchildren. So that's coming up and that's in the, that's in the email. You can talk to me about it. You cannot come unless you've read it. 
So I'm not, we don't want to spend 30 minutes summarizing because we're only meeting three times. So high challenge. Jesus operates on a spectrum from invitation to challenge, and we're doing a little bit of a high challenge. We're actually moving into a pretty high challenge season. So for some of us, it's going to feel like going through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's okay because uh, we need that. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. If you're new to Regen, we like to binge watch uh, whole sections of the Bible at a time. So like next year, 2018, we're going to spend about 30 weeks preaching through the, first, the books of First and Second Samuel. What's that, 2019? What did I say? 2019 is next year, just so you know. Uh, and we're going to spend about 30 weeks preaching through the books of First and Second Samuel. We'll break it up with some stuff. But, so we like to binge watch the Bible. So we're binge watching one of the most famous teachings of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And our inspiration for the series is this Netflix show called Stranger Things. I think it's one of the best things to happen in TV to TV in a long time. And if you have a Netflix subscription, you should watch this. If you don't have a Netflix subscription, you should get one and watch this. Uh, the premise is that in this small town in Indiana, something strange is happening. Uh, these four boys and their friends and families get sucked into the middle of this collision of two worlds where our world is being invaded by this other world. It is bumping up against and spilling over into our world, and it's doing that in particular through this girl named Eleven, who seems to be possessing some strange powers, who seems to be part of our world, but also somehow connected to and even part of this other world that is bumping up against and spilling over into our world. And through her, these, this collision is happening. I would argue that Stranger Things is the most Christian show on television. And it's not because like somebody like, and I've made this joke before, but it's not because like somebody like tells their philosophy teacher like, so what, and argues them back, and then they become a Christian and everybody claps at the end. It's because it, it really captures the arc of the story of scripture, which is that through the person and work of Jesus, something called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of my father, the kingdom of heaven, is breaking into our world and spilling over into it, and it continues to do that through the work of Jesus and then ultimately through the work of his people, which is why Jesus, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, says what I just said in like, eight minutes in three words. He says, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was as if Jesus was saying you could put your hand right through a window and there was the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the place where what God wants done is done. Where what God wants done is done. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus introducing us to this upside-down world where, where what God wants done is done, where we are set free from the spiritual strongholds of money and sex and power. It is an introduction to a whole new way to be human, a whole new way of relating with our possessions and our money and our bodies and relating with our words and sex and our desires. It is a whole new way of relating to God and to one another. And the Sermon on the Mount which we're kind of wrapping up here, the Sermon on the Mount is a really good example of why Jesus was killed. The Sermon on the Mount is a really good example of why Jesus was killed. I want to explore that for a minute, so it feels like we're changing gears. But Jesus was killed. Jesus was killed. It's what we mark on Good Friday because of the collusion of the Roman Empire with the Jewish authorities inside of Israel at the time of Jesus. The Romans allowed no one but Caesar to be called Lord, to be called Kurios. But because of his power over nature and power over death and power of the demonic, 
the people of Judea and Jerusalem and, and Galilee began to attribute to this Jesus of Nazareth this title, Kurios. Rome would not like that, and the Jews did not like it because Jesus was articulating a kingdom and for an authority that challenged their own. And so in reporting the, the movement of the crowds uh, uh, to the Romans, the Romans became complicit with the Jews in the death of Jesus. They killed him. They killed him because they didn't like how he was messing with their view of God and their relationship with God. To use rhymy words, they killed Jesus because he was messing not only with their perception of God, but also their connection to God. They didn't like Jesus because he messed with their view of God, that God isn't some angry judge who favors ethnic Israel over the rest of the world. Instead, he's a loving father who is for all of creation. That's a little bit of a caricature, but it's all the time we have. And this messes, this view of God as loving, caring father messes with the pagan view, the view of the Romans and the Greeks, of their gods, Zeus and Diana and Artemis and Apollo. Uh, he, he, it messes with their view that God is fickle and needing manipulation and having to be controlled. They, it messed with their perception of God and it ultimately messed with their connection to God their way of relating to God, because it wasn't for the Jews about strict adherence to the law of Moses, nor is it sacrifice and sexual pagan ritual, but our relationship and connection with God is as a child with their father and as a learner with their teacher and master. Jesus is killed for nothing less than he messes with our perception of God, what we think God is like, how he behaves, what his character is like, and, and he is killed because we are, it's, it's our connection, how we relate to him, how we speak to God and how we hear from him. And these two domains of perception and connection are addressed all over the place in the Sermon on the Mount and perhaps no more clearly than in these verses that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible... Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. There's paperback ones underneath you. You can Google it. Um, there'll be some verses on the screen. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son or daughter asks them for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, and by the way, we'll talk about evil and the H word next week. We're going to talk about hell next week. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask them? Now notice how Jesus does this. He's talking about our connection with God, ask, seek, knock. He's talking about our connection with God, but he contextualizes our connection with God. He puts it in the, in the frame of our perception with God. This is a fundamental principle of walking with Jesus. And if you're taking notes, I would write this down. It's this, it's that what we believe about God, who we believe God to be like, who we believe God to be will determine how we relate to him. Who we believe God to be will determine how we relate to him. I'm going to keep saying that because who we believe God to be will determine how we relate to him. 
Remember, the Jews perceived God as this angry judge and this strict enforcer, like an Olympic line judge, right? Looking, looking for something to be wrong, looking for something to go awry. They believed that God was on the hunt for people crossing lines, which leads to a strict, fastidious of the law, adherence to the law of Israel or else. And the pagans, in a, dissimilar, in a similar yet different way, perceive God to be fickle and unpredictable and distant, and so we need to get his attention with, with crazy festivals and, and, and pagan ritual and, 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 and sexual ritual and all of these bits to kind of get God, get the gods to do what we want them to do. But Jesus what he do, does what he does best. He goes totally against the grain of that, interrupting people with the love and grace of Jesus. He goes against that grain and lays a new groundwork for our perception with God and says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, in your speech and debate class, this was called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask for him. Now, Jesus is unpacking God as Father uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, starting in the beginning when Jesus is baptized, the heavens break open, a voice declares, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Earlier in Matthew 6, he says, he says uh, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things in reference to our worry and our accrual of things to make us feel safe. He's trying to help us understand our, and adjust our perception of God. Yes, this is a text about prayer. Okay, it is. And if prayer is, as Dan Henry, my spiritual director, said earlier this summer, the substance of our relationship with God, if prayer is the substance of our relationship with God, and if prayer is driven by our perception of God, boy, oh boy, we better get our perception of God downright. We better absorb and inhabit the biblical worldview of who God is because it's the whole ballgame. And Jesus says if human parents can be counted on to give good things to their children, then it would follow that God, who is a significantly greater parent, can be counted on to give good things to those who ask him. Now your brain... If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time or you know someone who has, your brain immediately goes to all of the times that you've asked God for things that haven't happened. And I am president of that club, okay? I am right there with you. We had three miscarriages over two years and every time I asked God not to, every time we asked God to spare their life, I don't think that qualifies as asking God for something less than good. So our brain rushes to all the ways that God doesn't do what we want him to do, and we're going to address that briefly, but notice that what Jesus is saying here is absolutely revolutionary about our, our view of, our perception of God. He is not distant and fickle and unpredictable and thus in need of manipulation and control. He is not mad or frustrated or looking to find our wrongs. He looks at us like a loving father looks at his children. He looks with joy. Scripture says he will rejoice over us with loud singing with a willingness and an eagerness to provide and care and love. So in your head is this marble of a lie rolling around in the junk drawer of your theology. And you need to find that marble and pitch it ASAP. Do you know what I'm saying? 
because what we believe about who the Father is is what will drive all of our behavior. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask for him? Jesus puts our connection to God in the context of our perception of God, how we relate to God is affected by our perception of him. And remember that the Jews spend a great deal of time being righteous. Jesus talks about the righteousness of the Pharisees. They live perfect, fastidious lives because it was their way of connecting with God. Romans and Greeks tried to get the attention of the gods with, in, with the, these inconsistent, fickle uh, gods. I mean, go back and read your mythology books that we learned about in middle school. I mean, these gods are kind of crazy and totally unreliable and totally unpredictable and totally inconsistent. And in both cases, Jesus says that this fastidious righteousness and these crazy, weird pagan sex acts are not needed. And this was frustrating and was frustrating to the early church. This is what the letters of Paul are about. Because you have the Jews on one hand in Christ, still trying to be fastidiously obedient to the law of Moses, and you have Christians that are new creations in Christ that are having like weird sex parties at church. There were a lot of people that when Jesus was like, we don't need sex for this, were like, are you sure? Because it's really fun, right? And there were a lot of people that were very religious and adhering to the law of Moses that when they heard this said, are you sure? Because I am so proud of my works righteousness. And Jesus says the only thing that is needed is obedience from the heart out. Let me tell you something as a side note. If you want to make somebody frustrated, mess with their perception of God. If you want to tick somebody off, if you want to make them mad, mess with their connection to God. It is what I do for a living. Here's, here's what I, I view my job to be, to consistently mess with your perception and connection with God and to draw it back from this weird junk drawer theology into the way of Jesus. If I die in a car accident this week and you need a new pastor, find somebody that messes with your connection and perception to God. And look at how Jesus speaks of our connection to God in verses seven and eight. He says, Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. I want to de-Oprah this text before we're done today, right? Because this sounds very Oprah, right? Like, put it out there into the universe, and it'll come back to you. Is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, the, the NLT here, notice how it says keep on, keep on, keep on. It's trying to capture these present tense verbs that indicate like ongoing action. But I, I want to I be clear and I want to go against the grain of something. It's not teaching us that if we persist in prayer, that if like, we keep asking and keep asking and keep asking, God will give us what we want. If we believe that, we believe a pagan view of God. I had a friend in college, Elise, she just got engaged, who under her bed at Moody Bible Institute, we're like 20-somethings, right, had what she called her something for Jesus to do box. And her something for Jesus to do box was, I'll write this thing for Jesus to do on a piece of paper, and I will stick it in the box. And then like once out of every six months, she'd go through and see how did Jesus kind of do with these things. It was a pretty good act of reflection. We are somewhat tempted to believe if I keep praying really hard, that the harder I pray, the more likely God is to respond. That's, that's paganism. 
earlier in Matthew 6, Jesus says there's no need to babble on. There's no need to use magic code phrases, which even if you're not a pagan or a Jew, you've got magic code phrases when you pray, church. Let me tell you why. You love the word just when you pray. Think about it. God, we just thank you for being in this place with us right now. And we're just so thankful for your blessings. And would you just come and just be here right now, right? Or, or there, there's the more spiritual version, which is the, and if you pray like this, that's okay. I just, I, it just, it catches my attention. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful you you're here, Heavenly Father God. And Father God, we just give you thanks, Father God, for who you are, Father God, right? Guys, I think he knows you're talking to him. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I think he heard. And uh, we don't need the magic phrases. You meet a lot, I mean, there's a lot of you that are new Christians. You're trying to figure out the prayer thing. Like when I was younger, my cousin Audrey, who's now in her 20s, but when we were little, um, I prayed once at dinner and I didn't say, in Jesus' name, we pray amen. I just said amen. And my cousin Audrey, six or seven, goes, you got to do that again. And I go, why? And she said, she said, because you didn't say, in Jesus' name, we pray. And I said, I don't think that matters. And she said, but Jesus says, if you, whatever you ask in my name, I will be given. And you didn't ask, so it's not going to happen. So what did we do? You know, 11-year-old Kyle, because it's his youngest, it's his cousin who's the closest thing he has to his sister, is praying it again. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen, right? But people don't know how to do that, right? I have friends that are discipling people, and they, like, kind of get to the end of prayer, and they're like, well, that's all I got. We'll talk to you later. You know what I mean? And it's not like, and you laugh, but it's not like God cares. If God's a father, he's just happy you showed up. I mean, he doesn't need the magic words. Doesn't need the magic words. Here's what Jesus, I think, is getting at. is not necessarily persistence. And I'm not saying persistence is bad. I think what Jesus is trying, and nor, by the way, this is one text on prayer, so nor can it answer all of our questions that we have. We try to get like one text to answer every question we have on prayer or anything. We can't do that. That's why there's a whole book. But here's what I think Jesus is trying to get us to a place generally He's trying to help us see that generally, as long as we have a loving father, that prayer is no harder and nothing more complex than asking a question, seeking something out, or opening a door. We don't need to be like the pagans who use ritual and words and magic phrases to bat, to beat down the door of heaven to get what we want. We don't need to formulate the question in the right way to get the answer. Instead, if we're relating to our loving Father, prayer is nothing more simple than asking a question, seeking something out, or opening a door. And what this text wants to do before it teaches us how to pray is trying to adjust kind of the bedrock level of our faith in Christ. It's trying to help us understand the core of our discipleship, that, that this is about our attitude. This is about our belief about who is on the other side of the door about who has the thing that we're seeking, about who has the answer to the question that we're asking. It's trying to adjust that. Generally speaking, I find that we stick at asking. And we tend to avoid seeking and only rarely knock. What we love to do is worry about knocking and send out texts to get people to pray about our worry about our knocking. We like to drive by the door a couple times just to see what the door looks like. Uh, we, we, we draw pictures of the door on the back of napkins and daydream about what's other, on the other side of the door while we're at work. But very rarely do we get out of the car and knock. And it's probably because the few times that we have moved from asking to seeking to knocking that the door opened just far enough to get our faces slammed into it. 
we're going to go back there. But let me say this. This is maybe not a text primarily about how to pray, but I think it gives us some instruction on this. And so I have kind of like three questions. Um, The first is, what are you asking for? This is a helpful thing to like go home and process through this week. Like, what are you asking for? What are you asking? Like, what do you need? That's why that's part of our prayer rhythm at Circles. It's a fantastic question. What do you need? I'm always surprised by my answer to that. It's very rarely like something surfacey. It's always something a little deeper than I thought it would be. What are you asking for? What are you seeking? I, I, would, I, I tend to think that this implies a growing intensity in prayer, a growing risk. What are you looking for spiritually? What are you questing after beyond health, beyond comfort, and beyond safety? I was writing this this morning, and I said all this out loud at the last campus, and I didn't get fired, so we're going to try again. So a lot of the things that we pray for, I would wager more than 50% of what you pray about is health and comfort and safety, if not for yourself, then for other people. Okay? And I'm not trying, it's very easy to guilt you about the prayer life you have instead of call you to a new one. So I'm not trying to do that. But I'm just saying, reflect on what you pray about. And probably more than 50% of it is your health or your someone's health or like your great grandma's cousins, nephews, former roommates, dogs, trainers, toe, right? That's what we pray about. That's okay. Um, when, when Steph and I found out we were pregnant, I honestly didn't think we would get this far. And what I really ultimately imagined was that we would have had miscarried again by this point. And the guy who's discipling me, his name is Chael. Chael said to me two things. He said, we get today. So we're going to be excited today. So we've had about a little more than four months of days to be excited, okay? And the other thing he said was, we live in a really unique zone. We live in a really unique zone that means um, we have a lot of medical intervention, uh, that we live in a unique time in history that most people who get pregnant just carry that baby to term. We don't even think about it. If you live in Africa, if you live in Asia, and if you live almost anywhere else in the world, there's generally more worry that that baby's going to come all the way to term. And if we lived at any other point in history, it would be rolling the dice. And I think what has happened, and I'm kind of just mentally exploring and writing this as I'm talking about it, but I think that what has happened is um, we get mad at God because he doesn't respond to us over the, like, the sickness and death of our loved ones because we think we have all this comfort and all this medicine that doesn't work and it must be God's fault when the reality of the era in which we live is like the old era is coming to an end as the new one is beginning and the old era is hanging on enough that most of us will die. Plot twist, all of us will die. We will get sick and sometimes medicine will not be able to intervene. And so what happens is when those are like the majority of things we pray for, And because we have a false sense of security from the medical establishment in the 21st century West, when someone dies, which is normal, when someone gets sick, which is normal, we kind of put God in this corner that because he didn't do that thing, we can't trust him anymore. When the reality is, if you go to Africa, like they don't have a doctor, they have prayer and that's it. I'm not trying to shame us for where we are, but I'm thinking I've also in my lifetime of about 30 years and in really trying to pray 
with the kingdom and in line with the kingdom, I have seen far more prayer answered for spiritual breakthrough than I have for healing. I have seen far more spirit prayer for spiritual breakthrough in a person's life and the life of our church. I have seen a lot more of that answered than I've seen someone be healed. And I know, listen, you guys text me when you're like in that moment. I don't want you not to. That's not what I'm saying. But it's very rarely that I get a 911 text. I'm about to ha- have dinner with a friend, of, a coworker of mine who doesn't love Jesus. Pray that we have a really good conversation. I don't get a lot of those. I don't get a lot of, hey, we're, our circle is meeting tonight and somebody's walking through something and we really want to make sure that we're comforting them and that maybe God shows up in a way to help them feel some relief in this. We don't get a lot of those. And I understand why we reach out to each other with the sickness stuff. I do because we, we come to terms in that moment with our frailty and our humanity. And, but at the same time, as the people of Jesus, the one guarantee that we have is that death doesn't matter as much anymore. I'm not saying that we don't grieve. I'm not saying that's not hard, but I'm saying that's the one thing that we've been guaranteed and the rest is up for grabs. The rest, the territory that we're supposed to take in the kingdom is up for grabs. And I'm wondering if our disappointment in prayer comes from investing a lot of time in praying for things that are good, but not ultimately the things that God wants us to pray for, which is why I love this quote from N.T. Wright. Um, He says, for most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. It's that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. So if I could challenge you to expand the edges of your prayer life beyond health and comfort and safety. And by the way, God wants to give good things to his children. So he wants like for jobs and provision to happen. He wants for like our kids to be safe. Like I'm already like a hot mess about our unborn child. Like I'm praying all the time about those things. But if I pray only about those things and God doesn't respond there, then it creates this category in my mind that he doesn't do anything where he might be doing many other things. I just don't have eyes to see them in prayer. Asking, what are you asking for? Seeking, going beyond comfort, going beyond safety, going beyond health, what relationship are you seeking breakthrough in? What lost people are you seeking new birth for? What blessing in a relationship are you seeking by praying for others? And finally, what doors are you knocking on? And knocking on a door, this metaphor, implies proximity to me. So it is one thing for me to pray for somebody to be healed. It is another thing for me to go to the hospital and lay hands and ask that God would heal them. It is one thing for me to want spiritual breakthrough in family or friends. It is another thing for me to be intentional about investing in them and having them over regularly to have those conversations. It is one thing for me to pray for a friend's kids to know the Lord. It is another thing for me to like invest in their lives to show up. For most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. The problem is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. Jesus, I think in this ask, seek, knock, wants us to learn to ask for the right things, to seek for the right things, and to knock on the right doors. So maybe you need to stop seeking after a relationship that is not working and you need to start asking for a different kind of relationship. So
So this week I would encourage you to kind of on a piece of paper, what am I asking for, what am I seeking, and on what doors am I knocking? Um, and if you don't care about prepositions dangling, I guess you could say, what doors am I knocking on? But I think it's really important that either, see, like our Reformed friends would say, remind, and our Pentecostal friends would say, like, declare, like that you need to remind yourself and declare over yourself the truth of who the Father is when you enter into prayer. Right? You need to remind yourself and declare to yourself who the Father is. Like, who am I talking to? Scott McKnight, this quote, I, I love it. My experience teaches me that it is e easier to make Christians feel guilty about their lack of prayer life than it is to motivate them to become more active in prayer. I don't want to shame you for the prayer life you don't have. I'm just trying to help you find the tiniest spark of life and then let's get a giant can of gasoline and dump it on there. Um, and a great way to start with that is if you go back on our website and listen to Dan Henry's talk on prayer, which I think is called like Prayer 101, fantastic. I mean, just pray it anyway. Pray it real. Pray it anyway. Huge. Don't worry about the form. Don't worry about the words. Just like start talking and start listening. It's really great. But one of the things that dampen our affections and trust is when we pray and the door is slammed in our face. I get that. Three miscarriages and uh, we prayed. I mean, one time we were on our knees begging and nothing. And um, when that happens, I mean, we had our third last August, and I kind of went dark. And I would say, um, Aaron, who lives with us last summer, would say, yeah, you were kind of in a dark place that whole summer. I think it took me until about October of last year to kind of come out of it. And there was a large part of me that was seriously wondering if I could do my job. Because I'm supposed to tell you true things about who God is, and I was like, I don't think I know who that is is anymore. A really helpful book for me was a book by a guy named John Mark Cummer. It's called God Has a Name. It's just working through Exodus 34, kind of attribute by attribute, and it kind of slowly brought me back uh, because the interesting thing about scripture is it doesn't really answer the question, why doesn't God answer me when I pray? It does not answer why didn't God do this or why didn't God do that. It doesn't answer that. It kind of answers it in a very scriptural, indirect way. If you have it, go to Psalm 13. It's not going to be on the screen, but Psalm 13 says, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord. I love this line. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. And look at, look at how Psalm 13 does this in verses 1 through 4. It's just like this slow downward spiral. And what stops the downward spiral is verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love, your hesed. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. It's interesting because in the midst of my questions and in the midst of my grief, in the midst of God not doing what I wanted to do, scripture didn't give like a line by line, this is why he did what he did. All it does every time is point us back to God's character. 
in the midst of feeling forgotten, in the midst of feeling overlooked, in the midst of grief, the only thing the psalmist has is, I trust in your unfailing love. It is God's character is the answer to that question. I mean, even look at how Jesus does this, right? Ask, seek, knock, it will be open to you remembering that if you know how to give good things to your children when you're a hot mess, your heavenly father knows how much more to give good things to his children. It's a call back to character. And that's why, that's why I think these verbs are in present tense. That's why it says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking, not out of persistence and drive, but to continue to go on a journey of asking and seeking and knocking with all of our questions, with all of our adventures unended, with all the doors unopened or slammed in our face, to find more and more and more of the character of a God who is good and kind. Psalm 30, uh, Exodus 34, which is what, which is what that book, God Has a Name, is based on. It just says this. It says, it's God introducing himself, and he says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I am the God of compassion and mercy. He says, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, and after that it gets a little intense, but the point is, The point is, Jesus is inviting us to ask the God of compassion and steadfast love and ultimate goodness. He is asking us to seek the only one who has what we ultimately desire. He is asking us to knock on the door for whom he alone has the key. That's what he's inviting us into. Let's pray. God, we have terrible perception of you. We have spotty connection with you at best. It's like roaming around on like 3G with one bar often. But there you are with your goodness that just won't go away and your insistence that we are loved. And uh, God, even when you don't do what what we want you to do, you just kind of keep showing up. You're constantly moving toward us with open arms. And so, Jesus, we give you our lives, and we give you um, our days. We give you our questions and our seeking and our unopened doors and invite you in that space where we go unanswered to reveal more of your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The temptation I had, I didn't say this, the temptation I had in that season And what I came to believe was that I I said, I will concede that God is good. But it's my fundamental belief that his goodness is less than what I thought it was. That's just what I came to believe. That he's good, but that it was like good minus, right? He was less than who he was. And somehow in the unanswered question and and the journey that still feels like in many ways forever long and the doors that were opened and shut in our face somehow in that process of keeping on asking and keeping on seeking and keeping on knocking what was revealed most clearly is that God's goodness is more than we think it is not less God's goodness is more than we think it is not less and he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death and he deals severely, but he also deals tenderly. And in the emptiness, his goodness is seen that much more clearly. 
we come to the table hungry. And Jesus offers himself that we might be full. We come to the table empty and he pours himself out for us. And he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the way we do communion at Regen, or the way we receive communion at Regen, is first of all, we receive it every week because it is a long road from now till home. And a lot of us come running toward the table more than walking some weeks. Uh, and the way we do it is someone will rip off a piece of the bread, you will dip it in the cup, and then taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you lose it, please don't go fishing. We'll help you with another one. Um, uh, I'm going to make two of my colleagues work today. So Derek and Jared, come here. And then Steph's going to help too. So we're part of this thing called the United Methodist Church, which I don't talk about a lot. But the most fun part to me is behind me are these really great men and women who are pastors with me. So Jared's a pastor over north of Youngstown and was in this room with us when there were like 25 people. And he was like, this can happen. And I was like, I don't think that's possible, but okay. Um, and uh, Derek and I recently met. He's over in Ravenna, and uh, I have a pretty big man crush on him. So I'm uh, doing a training at his church at the end of the month. So this is really cool. And uh, so these are some of the guys that stand between me and auto autocratic craziness, right? So um, you can go on that. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, full and satisfied even in our waiting. In Jesus' name, amen. Table is open. Daniel and Kat Drescher have been our interns for the summer, and uh, this is their last Sunday, so we're going to pray for them in a minute and commission them out, but um, a lot of ministries done in secret, you don't see it happen. Um, so here's a few of the things that Dan and Kat uh, accomplished this summer. Um, Dan and Kat were part of our weekly gathering of circle leaders to uh, help train our circle leaders. Hi, guys. Come here. It's good that you were with the kids. It's all good. That's awesome. Okay, that's great. Because they're going to get, they're gonna, there's going to be an amen, and then they're going to go to Chicago. So they've got to work tomorrow. So they were part of our circles training with our small group leaders every Tuesday night. They regularly had people in their home. Kat mentored a middle schooler. Dan mentored a high schooler. Kat wrote curriculum for both of our children's ministries at Gary Sand Regen campuses for the next year. Um, Kat taught almost every Sunday at both campuses, our kids, with only about one Sunday off a month. Kat, uh, it, she did a lot. What were you doing? Kat led summer camp at Regen, um, at Regen here from beginning to end while Danny taught Bible. Danny was part of uh, Grace Campus's visitation team and preached four times. Um, every Monday and Wednesday, our staff at Grace Campus has been gathering to pray, and so they prayed with us every Monday and Wednesday and led that time when Steph and I were out of town. Um, they helped launch the Student Circle, our community for 6th through 12th graders, um, which will continue in their absence every Sunday night at 7. And uh, through that work and discipling those kids, um, young Dan got baptized and put his faith in Jesus. They both taught Bible at uh, Grace Church's summer camp um, and a million other things that I couldn't remember to put on this list. And um, uh, we, we, we paid Dan and Kat, but they didn't do it for the money and they didn't do it for the recognition. They did it because they love our church, they love the local church, and they love the kingdom. And we're just super thankful. Our summer was bookended by them. And uh, can I borrow one of these? And uh, got to marry them in May or 
be a part of their wedding in May, and then now we're sending them back, and so we're really thankful. So I didn't know if you guys wanted to say anything. Okay. And uh, Kat didn't last time because she was afraid she would cry, and then she cried anyway. So <laughs> we're having a good day. So go ahead, Dan. Cool. Uh, I just wanted to thank all of you for this summer on behalf of me and Kat both. It's been such a blessing to work with you guys and, and just be a part of this church family. Um, I had something I was going to say, and I completely forgot it. So maybe I wasn't supposed to say it. But no, seriously, uh, thank you for, I mean, the first two months of our marriage, you guys were our family. You know, my mom's here too, so I could say that you guys were all a part of our family. Um, and uh, as we go, you know, Regen is amazing. This is a great community. This is a great church. And you guys have uh, two leaders here who love you guys more than you know. Um, so continue to love Jesus. And we'll see you when, you, when we see you next. Thank you guys so much. We love you all. We're going to um, pray, and we're going to, if you feel like comfortable with that, we're going to lay hands on them. So, um, Art, why don't you come help me? Um, and uh, Jairus, come here too. And Joey, you're not going to have to sing anymore, so you come help me. And uh, um, let me just, yeah, so um, we just think a lot of these two. So, um, Father, thank you that your best gifts are people, and that uh, your you um, adjust our perception and enhance our connection of you and with you uh, through people that you give us. And so we pray for Dan and Kat. Um, God, pray that through their marriage, you would be put on display in powerful ways in the local church that they're going to be a part of while they're on campus at Moody. Um, God, in every way, help them to continue to grow in fear of the Lord um, and in respect of men and women, God, we pray for richest blessings as they step back into work and in their local church and just invite you um, to be all that they need to provide for them in surprising ways. God, we love them and bless them in your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you so much. I'm so glad to spend my life with you and be part of our family. So we'll see you next week, if not before. Peace. <laughs>